Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of George Washington University and the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAPS Conversation podcast, our series of chats with leading scholars in the field about their research, current events, or whatever's on their mind. With us today we, is uh, Stacy Philbrick Yadav of the Hobart and William Smith Colleges and a board member of, of the American Institute of Yemen Studies. Um, Stacy, welcome to GW. Thanks for having me. So since you've been working for much of your career on Yemen, um, why, why don't we start with that? Um, you know, can you give us a sense of how you would read the current political situation in Yemen, the effects of the war, and basically what are the things that you think that people should be paying more attention to in Yemen than they are? Well, I mean, the effects of the war are overwhelming, and that's most evident in terms of the humanitarian situation uh, facing Yemeni civilians around around the country. And so certainly, I think one of the, in the quest for a political settlement, uh, in discussions of a ceasefire, one of the most important things, the most important thing that people need to bear in mind is the consequences that this war has had on the ground. We now are looking at a level four humanitarian crisis, which is one degree off from famine uh, in several parts of the country. And that owes in part to the dual impact of a naval and air blockade uh, on the part of the Saudi-led coalition and on the ground uh, disruptions of movement and distribution by the Houthi and Saleh-aligned militias. So sort of no one has clean hands when it comes to the humanitarian disaster, but I do think that there are possibilities um, there are possibilities that exist in, in terms of bilateral negotiations with states that might be able to improve the conditions on the ground uh, for Yemenis. So politically, you know, what has all this destruction accomplished? It's, it's amazing. At this point, it's very difficult to imagine either side winning. If we, if we actually envision sort of or ask ourselves, what does a Saudi victory look like in Yemen or what does a Houthi victory look like in Yemen, um, there isn't a clear winner. And that, that's, of course, because this is first and foremost a civil war. It's a civil war that has now been internationalized dramatically. Uh, it's not reducible to a proxy war in the way that I think a lot of the, the news coverage has framed it. We have to bear in mind the role of international actors, which has been tremendous and game-changing, but we ultimately need to turn to Yemenis to think about what kind of political settlement they could live with. And um, so, when you that's talk remote. to Yemen, when you talk to Yemenis, like what what do they think they could envision as a, you know as a new Yemen? I am disappointed to say that conversations at this point, the political environment has become so polarized that it's hard to even get to that conversation as much uh, as, I, as I would like to. Part of that is, I think, because the Gulf Transitional Council or the Gulf Cooperation Council transitional framework that was put in place in 2011 is really seen as the origin of the current conflict for the overwhelming majority of Yemenis. And they, di they differ on why and, and how that created a problem. But it's hard to convince people that an internationally brokered settlement is going to be productive, and yet it's impossible to think that a military victory is really achievable for either side. And I say that because, you know, the, the war is now more than 10 months on, and the, it, it's coming up on its year-long anniversary, and the Saudis have not been able to win in military terms, despite a clear advantage in terms of their um, in terms of their weaponry, uh, in terms of air superiority, the naval blockade, which is actually um, Egyptian-led, 
they haven't been able to drive back the Houthi militants and now their Saleh allies. And if they haven't been able to do that, despite this superiority, you know, it's hard to imagine that they will in the future. By contrast, it's extremely difficult to imagine that the Houthis will take over the whole of Yemen. In the meantime, of course, the province of Hadramaut is now under the functional control of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, which is, is actually now engaging in local governance in a way that it wasn't before and didn't seem to want to before. So that's an extremely uh, unfortunate negative development that's that's happened in the course of this war that, that really um, is in no one's interest. So... Uh, I'm. I may have lost track of your question a little bit. <laughs> well, let's, let, let's walk back a little bit. So, the the Gulf Cooperation Council's transition plan. Um, you know, one of the key components of it was this national dialogue uh, that uh, Jamal Benamar spent so much time trying to facilitate. And uh, wh- why was that not? Why did that fail? I mean, why why was this? You know, this year long more this very long attempt yes. to bring together all these people, have a dialogue about the country's future. Why was that not the right way to do this? I'm not sure it was an intrinsically wrong way to do it in design. I think the real issues came up at the implementation level in two specific ways. One has to do with the NDC and the other has to do with the transitional government. With the NDC itself, there were the outreach that National Dialogue Conference. There were outreach mandates that were uh, basically the, the organizers were tasked with doing a lot of local level outreach to different constituencies and groups in the composition of the delegates to the conference uh, and in shaping the agenda of the conference. And a whole lot of the mandated outreach just didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So the delegates who ultimately went to the NDC were far more diverse than any previous or existing collection of of Yemeni uh, political figures, but really didn't capture, I think, the, the populist sentiment of the 2011 uprising. And it was really embittering to independent activists in particular who felt themselves to be minimally minimally represented. The second component of the NDC that I think was problematic is that it, it was non-binding, right? It was just to, to generate recommendations, and those recommendations uh, were unwieldy, were not followed, and were ultimately subverted by some of President Hadi's decisions. So those are the things that I think went wrong with the NDC itself. At the same time, another problem is that the transitional government, the composition of the transitional government, left out the Houthis and members of the Southern Secessionist movement, which may make sense from the outside, but what it really meant is that because those figures were included in the national dialogue, but not in any kind of binding government governing institutions, they got voice, but no ability to act. And I think that that... Um, leaving the NDC was a very difficult mm-hmm. move for the Houthis in particular to go from an environment in which they were able to state and negotiate around grievances back to having no formal role in government. And things really did begin to deteriorate steadily after that point. Now that, that last point is really important because it, it's clear, it, it was always clear that there was a significant amount of activist and youth unhappiness with the national dialogue, but they're not the ones who ended up you know, launching the this process that was that was the Houthis and, and Saleh, and so so that that's an important point. But I was hoping you might be able to help us make sense of how 
did Ali Abdullah Saleh, who for many, many decades was Saudi Arabia's man in, in Yemen, end up in alliance with the Houthis fighting against a Saudi-led coalition? How exactly did that happen? Okay, before I address that, though, I do want to go back to this idea that the independent youth didn't, you know, sort of feed this deterioration. And and that's totally true. But their discontent following the National Dialogue Conference, sort of leading up to, during, and after the National Dialogue Conference, did, I mean, it was manifest in ongoing mobilization and and peaceful protest activity all the way up through the outbreak of, of war, particularly up through September of 2014. Well, that's a really um, good point. And, and I think that that doesn't get, re- that definitely hasn't been registered very heavily in Western media coverage. And, you know, there was a, a time over the summer of 2014 when the Houthis were really attracting a lot of, of people to their protests who um, were not aligned with the movement in other ways or mm-hmm. w- might have otherwise described themselves as independents, but were attracted to some of their anti-corruption critiques in particular in relation to the transitional government. So, you know, I think it is a complex picture. That said, the the independent youth, so-called, uh, they, they are not an armed contingent. Right. They were not capable of doing the kind of mobilization that the Houthis did. In okay, terms so of Saleh. Saleh and how Saleh ended up aligned with the Houthis, you know, I mean, this is... This pokes some holes in um, conventional explanations of the war that talk about sectarianism or that talk about, um, you know, the role of ideology or whatnot. So Saleh, um, you know, my read is that he is aligned against the people who pushed him out of power. And he is aligned now with a movement that he was, you know, spearheading a war against for, uh, you know, the bulk of the 2000s. So it's... Definitely not an ideologically driven alliance. Um, understanding why the Houthis did it, you know, I think that's also sort of a marriage of convenience. They have benefited from the the material contributions of, you know, disaffected members of the military, sort of mm-hmm. Salah loyalists that have brought with them some military equipment, uh, and they benefit from strength in numbers. So uh, I think it's a pretty loose coalition. But uh, military analysis is not my thing. Okay. Well, so a few years ago, I edited and published one of your pieces on uh, Tawako Karman when she won the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, I think her political evolution has been very interesting for many of us uh, to observe. Um, and I wonder if you could give us any insights into kind of how Karman fit within the broader political arena and how she ended up. Uh, in the political position she's in now with regard to the war? So, you know, I still hold by the position I adopted in that piece, which was that you can read her as a cause and as an effect, right? Mm -hmm. That she has elements, uh, she indicates changes in the field, and she has helped to shape some of those changes. The sad fact today is that she is involved explicitly in fueling sectarian animus in Yemen and in calling for the, the Saudi-led coalition um, to replace the Hadi government or restore the Hadi government through force. Uh, that's a, you know a disappointing development, I think, for someone who won the Nobel Peace Prize. But she, she, she told me that it was because of Saleh, that she saw him as the ultimate problem and that that's what drove her to it but I wonder if you think is there more to it than that I 
if I'm being completely blunt, I, you know, I, I think that there's some evidence of political opportunism that predates Salah's realignment. Because she's controversial within the reform movement. She is. And uh, now, the reasons she's controversial within the Islah Party or the reform movement, um, you know, that they're not all related to her political positions. Some of it is gender and mm-hmm. the prominent and vocal role that she's played as a Yemeni woman, which has not been accepted by everyone in the political class. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, I think her transformation, her sort of descent into this sectarian, uh, this sectarian animus, it may be premised on people having overestimated what she was ever going to do. She was first and foremost, at her best, mobilizing a crowd. She is and has been a great protest organizer. And that moment is, uh, is gone right now. That's not where Yemen is. There's a, there's a civil war. And I think, you know, uh, she has never displayed what I would consider a really like sophisticated political ideology. So so if someone like uh, Tawako can't be an avatar of an alternative to this polarized civil war, is there anyone who can? I mean, not names, but are there forces in the Yemeni arena that we can look to and say, here's an alternative to this horrible, failed state and civil war that we now face? I'm sorry to say that it's really difficult for me to identify any group that fits that description that is in Yemen and free to act. I think under mm-hmm. the prevailing conditions, um, you, you told me not to be too time-specific in my answers, but last night Sana'a was on fire, and there mm-hmm. were over 20, uh, 20 bombs dropped in, a, in an hour. Uh, and so people's freedom of movement is really curtailed, and the ability to engage in the forms of dissent or, or political organizing that we would we would need to see to counterbalance that that mm-hmm. is not practical. I do think that there's some um, some pressure from outside Yemen I mean, um, among Yemeni diaspora communities um, who, who are in dialogue with uh, the UN and with other actors, but but belief in the ability of the United Nations to broker an agreement is very low because of the weaknesses of the UN-backed GCC transitional framework. If um, if by some miracle uh, the Saudi-led coalition stopped bombing and the war and there was a, a, an enduring ceasefire, what do you think would happen? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I think that the challenge of humanitarian reconstruction, if I think analogously to other parts of the region, one of my concerns would be the dire need for humanitarian reconstruction, which attracts sort of patronage money from different communities, particularly in the Gulf, in a way that may not fuel a, a, a stable outcome in the longer term, but might actually be reasonably necessary in the short term. So, you know, I have, I am super reluctant to, to say much about mm-hmm. the need for international intervention, uh, but at the very least, uh, international humanitarian aid, I think, needs to be on the agenda. Well, that's very depressing, but, but honest, and I think that that's difficult for many of us to see where you can go from here after 10 months of the destruction of a state and 
the extent of the humanitarian crisis, which, as you've written, predates this war. It does. Um, I mean, it's the the collapse of services and of governance and of healthcare and environment has been on the uh, the agenda of people who study Yemen for many years. And but this feels qualitatively well, different. Ab- absolutely, yeah. but it's not like you could even say if we could just restore it to the 2014 status quo, everything would be fine. Because actually, the 2014 status quo was much worse than than people are now remembering it. I, I would agree with that, yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you, uh, Stacy, for joining us. Uh, this has been the Pull Maps Conversation podcast. Uh, I'm Mark Lynch. We've been joined by Stacey Philbrick-Yadov. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you.